0: You are listening to the Enormo cast. We
1: got to get going. Listen, uh, uh what are you playing in there? You are you playing here? We're doing the uh Enormo dome whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh it's yeah, the big place set that that of town. That's very a big nice. place. You're so oh, I say we have,
2: I'll I'll really we should Look, you better get up there before you panic. So those pens are loose.
0: You're very good.
2: I have really enjoyed having them with you.
0: We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Good weather, weather. No later anytime. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment with support from Maxim Ropes.
2: And don't forget, you can go to bonfirecoffee.com and entry normo at checkout to get a discount on Great Coffee. And you can go to pureholds.com and enter Enormo to get a discount on great Colorado-made climbing holds. Both the coffee and the holds will give you the power to crush your enemies and see them driven before you.
0: And now back to the show.
2: Hello and welcome to the Enormo Castle. This is your host, Chris Caluse. It is November 2nd, about 930 30. Daylight savings time, mountain standard. Daylight savings started this morning, which means the darkness is upon us here in North America. I'm not too stoked about that, but I'll get over it. Uh, This is episode 68 of the EnormaCast on today's show, Becca Skinner, Todd Skinner's niece. I recorded this one up at the Lander Climbing Fest way back in July, but I've been kind of saving it for various reasons. Um, But when I saw Becca give a presentation up there to the opening crowd about dealing with the legacy of sort of the climbing family, the Skinner family, and dealing with uh, the grief of losing her uncle and a bunch of other things. She kind of knocked the crowd over, and uh, I ended up persuading her to come on the show and talk about some of those themes, which we'll get to in just a little bit. And if you haven't noticed, it's raining women over here at the EnormaCast. This is three in a row that I've had with women climbers. And I kind of did that on purpose, because even though I've had this interview with Becca for quite a while, once I got the interviews with Angela Van Wiemersch and Don Glantz, which were the last two episodes, I realized that Becca's kind of fit in there somewhere in this sort of arc with two young climbers and someone a little bit more experienced, Don Glantz, and sort of these different ways that the two first interviews, Angela and Don, got into climbing, and then Becca's actually reveals someone who's sort of pulled away from it a little bit as she kind of examined her motives and realized that she was approaching it in maybe a way that wasn't really making her satisfied. And that's kind of what today's interview is about. It's also a very revealing interview about the inner workings of someone who loses a family member in the mountains and then has to sort of share that grief as the rest of us kind of want to get on board because we feel like we knew them as well in the case of Todd Skinner, who was so famous, and it touched so many people's lives. I think this is a special interview that Becca gave us. I think there's a lot of wisdom here, even from someone as young as her. And I know I have a lot of younger listeners, a lot of gung-ho climber types. And I remember when I was in my early 20s, and I couldn't imagine any sort of tragic thing happening to me or happening around me. But regardless of whether it's climbing or not, if you live long enough, You're going to lose people that are close to you. And I think that uh, what Becca has to say here may be helpful in the long run for some folks, especially climbers. If you climb long enough and you climb in the mountains, the odds are pretty good somebody you know, someone that you care about, isn't going to come back. I know that sounds heavy, but the truth is is Becca's got a warm, very sweet spirit and some very down-to-earth knowledge to pass on to us today. So, settle in for this one a conversation with Becca Skinner, Living the Legacy. As you know, Black Diamond is a sponsor of the Enorma cast, they help the Enorma love to flow freely into your ears which is fine with me because i've used black diamond equipment since i started climbing and we're talking back to the double axle camelots and hexes and things like that i'll say one thing that i truly believe in that the camelot c4 is the best cam ever made i'll go toe-to-toe with anybody on that one but did you know that they make apparel now too men's apparel women's apparel what is apparel well that's an industry word for clothes jackets pants shorts Everything you need for climbing, everything you need for skiing. So if you love their gear, and I know you have some already, because if you're a climber, then you've got some BD gear. You go check out uh, what they're doing with the clothes over at BlackDiamondEquipment.com. So have a look and thank Black Diamond for sponsoring the Enormacast. You ready to go? Yeah. Okay.
1: Okay, so Lander. Still in Lander. I'm in the mobile studio with Becca Skinner, who's part of the Skinner dynasty up here in Lander, although you grew up mostly down in Denver, right?
0: I did. I moved to Lander uh, most every summer in high school. So I, I would almost claim Lander as my home over Colorado.
1: So anyway, but I'm sitting in the mobile studio, see, at the end of the Lander... Climbing or the climber, International Climbers Festival. This is going to be the last one before I roll out of town. Becca is, in terms of climbing world, is, the person will know is that your uncle, it was Todd Skinner.
0: Yep. And that's uh,
1: you are part of sort of, like I said, a, a family that was well known in this part of the part of the world, um, not just Lander but Pinedale as well. Right. But also, you know, internationally famous in terms of Todd's legacy in climbing. So. Mm-hmm. Becca gave a presentation at the opening ceremony for the Lander Climbing Fest, and I saw it and I was just like, so compelled by it and um, ended up meeting you the next night, or no, later that night.
0: Yeah, we brought you gasoline when you ran out.
1: Oh, that's right. That's right. That's when we met. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's right. I forgot. I forgot we actually met when I ran out of gas (laughs) um, up at Sinks Canyon in the RV and uh, called Chris Hampton and, and uh, Becca showed up with Chris to help out um, giving us gas. That's when we met. I yep. forgot. Um, but anyway, later that night after the presentation, really late at night, I got you to sort of agree to maybe sit down, and that's how we ended up here. So I just mentioned this this sort of climbing dynasty. You, um, Your father was Todd's uh, brother. Yeah, that's and, correct. And he also grew up here in, in Wyoming.
0: Yeah, they, uh, they all grew up in Pinedale my grandparents well my grandfather had five brothers and so the five of them started kind of a survival wilderness camp called Skinner Brothers so uh, and that's right it was right outside of Pinedale it went under but uh they they all grew up in Pinedale going to the camp and -hmm. and everything
1: in terms of of a timeline that's Mm -hmm. when those guys were fairly young Right. Right. The family has this legacy of the whole cowboy climber thing. Right. And um, and that's sort of like the basis of it. These guys were running like a, a, a wilderness camp supplied with horses, all that sort of thing. Yes.
0: Yeah.
1: You you were born in, in Wyoming or in Colorado? In
0: Colorado. Okay. In and,
1: Denver. And how old are you?
0: I'm 23.
1: Okay. I just want to sort of frame this all in the, all in right. the history <laughs> of it all. I mean, I don't think we have to worry about being some sort of spoiler, but one of the gists of your presentation was this uh kind of your connection to this legacy of climbing and if sort of to sum it up the feeling of maybe uh being expected to take part in this this legendary kind of pursuit that that your family was involved in but at the same time not being uh not finding yourself that compelled by it but also feeling as though you had a had an important legacy to make your life something interesting and something adventurous right is that kind of kind of like sum, summing it up a little yeah bit? i
0: think that's spot on uh-huh. yeah yeah
1: and so when i heard that i really was compelled because as a climber who came to it after high school and a family who had no idea what climbing was um and we were you know we had camping things and everything so, but i grew up in the suburbs it just occurred to me like I, I thought of this all the time once i moved to colorado i'm like gosh i wish i'd have grown up doing this you know i wish yeah. i'd have had these opportunities and yet, obviously, you know, like all things in the world, if you're if you sort of expectations are put on you as as a kid, and in particular as a teenager, it's right. it's not always like that comfortable of a thing.
0: Right. Yeah. And my parents never pressured me to climb. It was something that I found on my own. Mm-hmm. Um. I I mean, we grew up doing it. Sure. But, um, well,
1: can you tell tell me what that looked like in terms of? You know, growing up, coming up here to Lander and and being involved in climbing uh, when you were younger.
0: So I I have two siblings and uh, my dad, well, both my parents are geologists. Mm -hmm. And so we were always outside. We were camping, backpacking, climbing, fishing, uh, going to Skinner Brothers to visit my grandparents and uh, my grandfather's brothers. But... I mean, we climbed for fun. It wasn't anything that no one in the family, except for my uncle, really did it anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad is much more of a mountaineer. Okay. But uh, no, we we just kind of grew up in like a fun, relaxed setting. But we came up to Lander often because most of my family lives up here. It was a fun childhood. It was great. But um, yeah, that I was never pressured to climb. But.
1: So in your relationship with your uncle, with Todd, I mean, he's still climbing, even if your dad wasn't as much is that kind of was your conduit was coming up here and climbing with him?
0: Well, he traveled right, a lot. Right. And so uh, a lot of the time that we came to visit would be when he came back from expeditions. Mm-hmm. And I think really when we when we came up to visit, we would go... Um, we would all have dinner or we'd all sit around telling stories. And mm-hmm. it actually wasn't really involving climbing at all other than him telling us stories of these exaggerated stories, I have sure. to say. But uh, they were all sort of revolving around his climbing expeditions.
1: Uh-huh. I'm trying to get a, a feel for, you know, growing up and and your connection to this, this idea of adventure and all that sort of thing. I mean, is this like kind of sure. where it's becoming instilled
0: Growing up going outside, and then my grandfather was climbing in British Columbia and Yosemite in in the 50s. Um, Growing up with those photos and then hearing my uncle's stories, and this is what I talked about in my presentation, was really set a platform for me. Like, this is, I I thought that's what everyone did, really, until I got a little bit older and my my dad started coming into my classrooms to give presentations Mm -hmm. on uh, his expedition to Everest, it was called Cowboys on Everest. And, uh, I knew what bivouac was and I knew what crampons were, but no one else did. And they just thought it was wild, you know, that someone would do that. But, um, I think it's always been instilled when we were little to just go outside and explore images and stories we were hearing.
1: So you're growing up down in, in Colorado. I mean, is this like straight up suburb, uh kind of existence in terms of your school in terms of your high school
0: yes very suburbia right and how did you
1: i mean did you do you feel like you grew up and fit in down there or were you sort of having these sort of feelings of of wanting to be here wanting to be that wanting to be accepted and all those sorts of things
0: i think it wasn't until i got to high school that i realized how different my childhood was from Mm -hmm. most other people's child i mean we grew up in suburbia but Uh, My parents took us up here rock hunting on the desert. It was our vacation. Um, And we we never went to Hawaii or, you know, any other beach place. And so I think in high school, I realized that I fit in way more or I had such more of a passion for this kind of lifestyle. Yeah, I think in high school is when I realized that I I tended to gravitate towards Wyoming more than Mm -hmm. suburbia.
1: And what what when what years were you in high school?
0: I graduated high school in two thousand eight, so before okay. to8 Okay. Well, I started climbing more seriously. I I developed more of an interest in it while my uncle was still alive. So pre two thousand six. I I thought it was really fun. I started competing. I was going. I was spending most of my time at the climbing gym and mm-hmm. at school. Then. I don't think the pressure for it, it was all internal pressure, but I don't think the pressure to be a climber came until after he died. Okay. So I liked it just fine, um, competing and being recreational with it mm-hmm. um, until after the accident.
1: You know Todd's impact on climbing. If you're if you're into climbing and especially late '90s, early early two thousands was ubiquitous and and obviously you probably understood he was a famous climber were you into climbing enough to realize just who he was in terms of of the world of climbing or was he like your uncle that was like a good climber
0: oh yeah absolutely not i i had no idea who he was to the climbing community until after he died and uh-huh. uh sometimes i would tell people my name and they'd you know kind of gasp or ask are you related to Todd Skinner? And I just thought, oh yeah, that, yeah. Right. He's, like, uncle. he's yes. my uncle. He's my uncle. Right. And that, that was always how I knew him. Mm-hmm. He never talked about his biggest accomplishments as a climber. Sure. When, when we were around, he just made us do pull-ups on the rafters. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you're becoming a climber and written and up until 2006. And you're in high school when this happened right. is when Todd had his accident. And you know, just to frame it if anybody for some reason doesn't know and i I would imagine there's plenty of climbers now that that may not have gotten into it right. in time to know this but sure. but uh Todd Skinner had his harness fail on the leaning tower in Yosemite very much suddenly was in the news that Todd Skinner had had fallen to his death, and in, later it came out that his harness failed I mean I just it was just a huge shock to the climbing community you know, I don't want to make you uncomfortable, but what kind of impact was the suddenness of it on, on your family?
0: Well, I think personally, I always, whether I was conscious of this or not, I I viewed him as being invincible. Um, he had been in hundreds of desperate situations before that he was able to talk his way out of. And that's very different than a harness failure, obviously, but in my mind he was invincible and so i the suddenness of it and the way that it happened i think well i hated climbing for a long time mm-hmm. after that and my dad was kind of he wasn't climbing a lot before that happened but but he doesn't really have an interest in it anymore mm-hmm. and i don't i i assume part of that is because of the accident mm-hmm. but still i I'm the only one in my family who's gone back to Yosemite.
1: Well, you know, I I kind of am curious because, you know, within climbing and mountaineering in particular, and and if your dad had, you know, some experience on on Everest, you know, we obviously all accept risk within what we do because, you know, and you can argue about, well, it's more risky to drive on a highway and all that sort of thing. However, one of the appeals of the sport is the risk. Right. You know, it's thrilling to be off the ground, even if everything is safe, mm-hmm. you know, or supposedly safe. It It's the thrilling part of it. So in my experience and in my life, when people I've known have died in the mountains, there is at least a small part of us, I think, that is a little bit prepared for it. Sure. And so I was kind of wondering if, if at least within your family with your grandfather, is he still alive?
0: He isn't. Okay.
1: No. But the, a family who is aware of the risks, you know, was there any of that or was it just like any any other family like this is this is too much or, or we're going to find a way through this but not necessarily accept it right away or anything like that?
0: I think it was maybe confusing for me because I, I was only 16. And so I guess I can't really speak to the rest of my family. Sure. Um, I'm sure there was some... Acceptance of what he was doing was was always dangerous, mm-hmm. but um, it also made him really happy. But I think it was confusing for me as a 16-year-old to see or to have so many people involved in that death because Supertopo, the sure. website, mm-hmm. uh, there was a massive feed on there. And in some ways it was really comforting to read so many people's experiences with him, but it's also sort of overwhelming, uh, you know, trying to process the grief and then also feeling like so many people are involved with my, my family.
1: It's interesting. You put that into words because it's something that I've thought of in the past is that whether I mean it's a small celebrity kind of thing within climbing compared to you right. know, some sort of movie star or sure. what what have you. But it's also a very personal connection that people feel to to sort of celebrity climbers. Right. Going back to something I've talked to over and over again is a cool thing is that we can hang out with these celebrities and these people who, who said they shared experiences with them, it's because yeah, if you went right. to Waco in the nineties you you, you climbed right next to him and talked to him about it. And, you know, in a way that you can't do that with other sort of celebrities. So this connection, I mean, like you just said, I guess it's, it's comforting, but also, I mean, it's probably feels super invasive.
0: Definitely. I I mean, I, I almost felt like I had to share that with Mm -hmm. people and for something so personal as, as a death or a sudden death it. um, I think it was really confusing to me to feel like I'm I'm having to share the grief, and I I, I want to make it clear that I, I went back and forth between that. It didn't always feel like I was sharing mm-hmm. that in a negative way. Sometimes it was really comforting to be to share that grief with so many people.
1: And and then I also want to say this. I mean, you're a 16 year old girl, right? At this point, and I, you know, I was a high school teacher. I taught 16-year-olds. Right. And so, I mean, you're not, it's not like you have an adult control over any of your emotions or any of your feelings. Not that we, we can control them at all times anyway, but I mean, like 16 for any boy or girl, like, I mean, it must have been something of a, of a wake up each day with a different Whole set of feelings towards a thing and, and not maybe even understanding where you're at at any given moment
0: oh yeah, yeah and well, so my my grandmother passed away the month before, and then my uncle died okay so his mom right. and then my uncle passed away in October and then my grandfather in December so it was pretty a pretty massive hit sure on the family oh, I
1: had no idea that the other The other two were so close.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it broke my grandfather's heart. But to be 16 and have all of these deaths Mm -hmm. uh, to deal with, I I think it forced me to grow up really quickly Mm -hmm. in ways that I'm still trying to figure out. But it also made me really appreciative. And I kind of... Well, I don't want to say I totally snapped out of being an angsty teenager, but it really changed my relationship with my family Uh for a positive in a positive way. I'm grateful for.
1: Yeah, right. And (laughs) and, and like the tone in your voice speaks to what I'm talking about of like well, I'm grateful for this thing, but it's tragic. Don't get me wrong, you know? Right. And and another thing you said that's occurred to me in the past is about this, you know, this feeling of not wanting to share your grief and which makes it seem as though it's something you want to hold on to. Yeah. And I think that's a really confusing feeling as well. Definitely. And, you know, again having some recollection of what it was like to be a teenager, even though it was you know, <laughs> a long time ago, of, of, I mean, that it's like he was mine. He, don't pretend you're supposed to grieve over him because you didn't really, I don't care if you climb next to him and wake or not. You don't know who he was. He was mine. Right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and that then probably makes you feel sort of the next day bad for feeling that way. And and I found that grief and and losing somebody can make you, yeah, just topsy turvy in terms of guilt and in terms of how you're supposed to take care of it. And, and, you know, I've been to these memorials and I can only imagine you you probably went through a few
0: Mm -hmm.
1: because that's what climbers do. Right. And, you know, I've stood back from those and, and realized that I've spent half the time here at this memorial laughing and carrying on and like with my friends. And then I'm like, well, wait, what am I supposed to be doing here? Am I supposed to right. continue to feel bad? Am I supposed to, do I, am I making too light of this right now? Because, sure. yeah, and it's just, it's such a confusing thing anyway. And then to put that into the brain of a 16 year old girl, like, I mean, it must have been some sort of psychological experiment. That was happening inside of your head.
0: Yeah, it definitely felt that way a lot, mm-hmm. a lot. And and he had kids too. I, he had has kids, sure, um, who were pretty young at the time. And so um, we have always talked about him after the accident. We've we've talked about him a lot. Probably almost every day. He's still very much a part of our conversations, mm-hmm. um, which is great. I mean we all we all really miss him and it's fun to tell stories about him. He had some great life experiences, mm-hmm. but um but in a way, yeah, it it's almost grieving over and over again in different ways.
1: Well, here we are talking about it and and you know, now I'm starting to feel a little guilty, and I'm really glad that you're here talking about it because I mean, I think it's useful. It's it's got this climbing topic around it. Right. But it's a it's a useful thing to talk about because everybody's going to go through it at one point. Sure. But what you just said reminds me. I mean, the Lander Climbing Festival, why I'm sitting here with you, is in a lot of ways become something of a yearly tribute to Todd, right? Because he was involved in starting it. I think it Mm -hmm. was kind of sort of his idea to begin with, right? Um, And as as it's ebbed and flowed, and it's definitely you know flowing right now. Each year in the last few years, it's gotten it's gotten bigger. You know, we come up here and people are talking about him. And right. people are sort of reliving this whole thing, you know, so here's that presented to you, uh, every year. Right. You know? And, and once again, you're, you're, you're sharing him with all yes. of us. Yeah.
0: yeah. And in some ways I really look forward to that because there's a lot of people in my life that didn't know him. And so coming here, either people knew him or, you know, idolized him and, and want to hear stories about him. But I, I, leave exhausted mm-hmm. emotionally and physically, but, um, yeah, I think it also takes a lot out of the family to talk this much or be reminded this much with, with people that knew him so well. And I think miss him at this, I don't want to say at the same capacity because that doesn't sound fair, but mm-hmm. I think people understand a lot of people here understand the amount of the, the huge presence he had mm-hmm. in all of our lives.
1: So I want to get back to to you and, and what happened with your climbing afterwards. Okay. But before we do that, I mean, how old were his kids in 2006? Like real little, yeah?
0: The twins were six and the oldest was eight.
1: This is quite a bit later. I mean, we're, we're eight years out.
0: Eight
1: years, yeah. When I asked you, like, did you realize who your uncle was to the climbing community? You know, they had no idea at the time, right? And so, I mean, do you have any idea, like, what this this kind of thing that surrounds their their now lost father, you know, has uh, the effect it has on them?
0: Right. Um, I think that they, it's all speculation, mm-hmm. obviously, but but I I think it's pretty pretty similar for them. Sure. You know they they love hearing stories about him and. Um, telling stories about him. Holy smokes! Uh, Jake tells stories just like him with mm-hmm. his hands and his um his voice um fluctuations. It's, it's crazy. And but I I think that they too leave feeling probably pretty exhausted. Mm-hmm. Um, and they they never knew him as a. Professional climber. Sure. Um, but it's been really fun as they've gotten older to watch them come into climbing on their own. Uh, my aunt's never pushed it on them. It's always mm-hmm. been an option or a fun thing to do because we, you know, grew up in it, or that's where most of our friends came from, and so. For them to come into it on their own and say, oh, this was one of his routes or, you know, he found this area and it's so cool to be here. I think that's so awesome that they they get to experience that.
1: It just occurred to me, you know, what you are talking about and how it affected your life, you know, they have a whole nother perspective on it and, you know, and need to also share are forced to sort of share their feelings or their grief with all of us as well. Sure. And this, again, like. It's only now that I'm talking to you that I really, I've thought of this before, but it's really crystallizing just how much, you know, we sort of take from you guys in a sense because of our need to want to connect to someone like this and not just Todd, but but anybody. I mean, I think of Johnny Copp uh, in Boulder and yeah. and how much, you know how his his group of friends was so huge and I knew Johnny not super well but um you know enough to be impacted by that but you know they would his family and and his very close friends you know like and I, and I know that this was a problem for some hmm. is this whole like everybody's on board yeah. with with grieving for for Johnny and the people who truly knew him I know some of them felt like you know I realize that you're just trying to be nice, but like, you know, just maybe leave it alone for a little bit.
0: Yeah. And and it's been, man, I, I feel like I've, I've felt so strongly both ends of the spectrum that I, I don't know. I think it probably depends on the situation and and who's sharing that grief because it's also – been so comforting at times to walk into a place and have someone, I mean, a climbing, when I move somewhere new, because I, I often do, the first place I go is the climbing gym. And if I can connect with someone through that, it's almost comforting or, yeah. you know, it almost helps because it doesn't necessarily feel like a surface level, Sure. you know, where are you from, it's, right, right. you know? This person was a hero to you. Mm-hmm. He was a hero to me too. So. Yeah,
1: and then I mean, there's degrees. I mean, you know, you probably have to step back and and think about the next level, and and that's right. to- Todd's wife, and and so yeah. I mean, it, I, it's just so complicated.
0: It's you know? so complicated.
1: Right. And uh, all right, well, let's go back to your climbing. So okay. you, uh, so Todd dies 2006. You're in high school. You were into climbing. Now, you mentioned earlier in the show here that. It wasn't only till after he died that you started to feel some sort of pressure to be some type of climber that maybe you didn't want to be. Yeah. And can you sort of explain where that was external, internal, you know, and sure. how that sort of came about? And maybe it's mixed with all this stuff we were just talking about.
0: I remember very clearly, immediately after finding out that he died, I told my parents, I'm never going to climb again. I said, that's it. I hate it, and, um, and I did, and I, 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 I really felt like it stole that from me. It stole him from me, and so I stopped climbing for a while. And then I think it was 100% internal when I realized that no one in the family was climbing, and that was such a large part of our lives And what we love that I felt like, well, I'm the next skinner in line. And I I thought of it almost like it was my duty Mm -hmm. to keep that going. And so I started competing and really forced it. And I've I've never really been that great of a climber. I love it, but I'm not a V ten climber, you know. My uncle and I were are very different, mm-hmm. um, but uh, but yeah, I felt like I needed to keep that going because no one else was.
1: Well, and, and you know, it may not have been any sort of overt pressure from outside, but but at the same time, like I said, that we all wanted to sort of be a part of of the memorializing them. You know, we also probably were wondering about you know are his kids gonna climb and, right. and they're young and sure. and you know um I actually when I first heard your name, I thought you were her were his daughter because I knew there were kids that were about that age right you know it didn't sure. last long, but I just in in passing i I thought and so I can only imagine if people were asking you if you climb if they found out todd was was your uncle or whatever like yeah. So whether we were like you have to climb or just the expectation of it 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 couldn't it, I mean I'm just saying it wasn't all in your head like we and I say we the the sort of greater climbing community sure. you know we sort of we want it to be this dynasty this legacy this right. thing that you know we're all waiting Tommy Caldwell's kids already he's right. like one or something and Fitz he's like the, oh yeah yo, he's yeah. going to be the greatest climber ever <laughs> Right right you know? right right so yeah, I mean absolutely. and it we we're, we're mostly joking but you know when a kid turns 12 and 13 and 14 and 15, you know, we think is very uh, off the cuff, not really pressurizing them. They they internalize things that they hear and, and say in ways that you can't even imagine. As a yeah. teacher, I just realized like you can make an off the cuff comment that is light and joking. And, you know, you find out a year later that that this this young person like internalized it to the point of like obsessing over it.
0: Right. So. And I think that was part of the 16-year-old trying to deal with mm-hmm. grief and emotion and being 16. That was probably just one added thing to the confusion.
1: Sure. And so what did this look like you said you started to get into competing and mm-hmm. and and trying to be this climber to a certain extent realizing that, you know, you're a good competent climber but are not going to maybe make it to the best. Right. You know, and, and your uncle was the best at a lot of things that he did. And, uh, yeah, so what did this look like in terms of as you started to realize that you weren't really happy with it?
0: Well, I think that there were kind of a series, and and I think the Yosemite example that I talked about in my presentation. Yeah, let's talk about that. Then. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I think there was a series of kind of, desperate situations where I was suffering and climbing maybe a little bit more than like past the point of having fun. And I was like, I really don't think I love this, but I feel like I need to do it. And, and in Yosemite, I, I thought that I wanted to climb big walls. So I I was training for the South face of Washington column, Uh, with a friend of mine, and this is just last summer, so, I mean, still to this day, I think now it's probably my ego that's getting in the way, and maybe not the expectation Mm -hmm. that I'm supposed to be a climber, but, um, I was going to climb the south face of Washington column, and I I got to the valley and realized that I just felt so bitterly unprepared, and that maybe I, I really didn't want to climb the goals. I like the idea, uh, And I think that was probably put into, that was solidified as I was jugging up this, the fixed lines under the Salathe. Um, And just the act of jugging uh, was enough to make me, to make me think that maybe big walls wouldn't be in my future. So
1: you, you were gonna, what you said that someone talked you into, into (laughs) Just jugging the lines up to the heart ledges, about ten pitches yep. um of fixed lines just right. to get the experience of jugging into getting off the ground. And were right. you guys gonna spend the night up there too? Yeah. yeah. So
0: we went up there and we had dinner and then coffee the next morning uh-huh. and came down, which was great because I've I've always been curious as to, you know, what does it look like when you sleep up that high. Mm-hmm. I've always loved the idea of sleeping in a portal edge and the those are ledges it still felt very sure, high off yeah, the ground yeah. and you know high consequences uh so yeah i was i refer to it as exposure therapy because we i felt very exposed to jugging up the side and uh the girl who i went with uh, her boyfriend's on yosar mm-hmm. um this search and rescue team in yosemite and um both of them live in camp four and are very quick at jugging and so i was it wasn't their fault that they left me alone on the side of El Cap, you know, jugging by myself, trying to figure out how to get my system right. And they were very encouraging, but, um, that just probably added to the fear and the desperation of like, Oh, this isn't my path. Why do I keep pushing it? Um, but, uh, it it ended up being really great for me as a photographer to Mm -hmm. be up that high and to change my perspective and get to sleep. 1400 feet off the ground
1: and do you think like you were feeling this or you know like oh you know she grew up climbing with Todd like she shouldn't she's she knows how to do this like she can do this
0: I was very clear to Jess <laughs> and Shane that that I I had had very little experience jugging mm-hmm. um I think I had jugged twice in my life and it was a free hanging rope and so and that was jugging on you know, jugging in open space is much different than jugging up slab. Sure. Um, no, they, they yeah. were very aware Cool. Of my lack.
1: Well, so emotionally, you said earlier in the show, you, you were the first one and the only one in terms of, of your immediate family that's gone back to Yosemite. Right. The Yosar, you know, was originally very involved in um, obviously going and finding Todd's body and also investigating what happened and, and coming up with the explanation did that weigh heavily on you or were you able to just, oh, Yosemite, you know, it's another place that he climbed and and it just happens to be where, where he lost his life?
0: Um, no. No, it, it weighs heavily on me each time I'm there. Mm-hmm. I still can't really look at Leaning Tower. It's It strikes a chord in me that um, I... You know, that's, that's the side of it. Um, mm-hmm. But I... It took me a couple of years to go back. I had mm-hmm. been when I was younger, um, and I, I swore to myself that I wouldn't let a place that he loved so deeply become a place that I hated so deeply. So that that was a personal mission for me that I felt like I needed to go for myself.
1: So did you, when you were on the heart ledges, did you find any sort of joy or pride, or just that you were sitting under the salathe? This, this oh, thing yeah. that was like. The sort of, I mean, one of the la- the things from his his legacy that will always last is is what they did on the thing him and Paul Piana, so.
0: Right. Yeah, no, in, I, I talked about it in the presentation, but I don't think I've talked about it on, on the show yet, that the day that I jugged up, well, it was the same day that I bailed on the South Face, and so I wasn't planning on being on El Cap on that day, but right. as I was scrolling through my phone on Heart Ledges, and... I got a text message that it was the 25th anniversary of the first free ascent of the Salathe that I just happened to be sleeping under that night. And I, I cried. I mean, I was that, that was so uh, meaningful Mm -hmm. to me to be there. And unknowingly that that was something that I didn't force and it happened. And I was under a route that meant a lot to him and, um you know thinking like oh wow i bet he slept here you know he stood on these ledges too that that's really uh it was a connection mm-hmm. for me that mm-hmm. i i miss him a lot but i in those moments i it wasn't even like i missed him i was like that's his spirit you mm-hmm. know i i felt that there have been a couple times in my life where i just felt like his spirit was just He's cheering
1: me on. So uh, you're on El Cap. You were just a little bit explaining. Um, we haven't even talked about the fact that, that you are now pursuing uh, sort of adventure f- photography and, and art photography and outdoor photography in general. Right. So you just mentioned like this new perspective as a photographer that you you also gained from this trip up there.
0: Right. And I think that there's... Uh, through th- th- this series of desperate situations. Um, I think that it's brought a little bit of clarity to me that professional climbing definitely isn't my path and I will always be a climber in this, even the most basic senses. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how I connect to people. But the photography is, is great because I can use climbing as a tool mm-hmm. and... That way I can still have both, but I'm not pushing, you know, I don't need to be necessarily training to climb a big wall, but I'm training to photograph people on a big wall, which, which I love the combination of the two.
1: But you, but your photography is gone on, you know, I mean, it's way beyond just climbing. I actually kind of edited myself just there when I said a, a- you know, adventure photographer. Yeah. You know, what I've seen here at the show is is not adventure photography. So right. tell me about that. You you mentioned being in college and dropping out, having a realization that you were gonna you were gonna pursue uh photography, definitely outdoor, you know, definitely bent towards adventure and that sort of thing. So and you also mentioned how that in your mind is this expression of an idea that your uncle and your family sort of promoted right? of, you know, living this life that's sort of bigger than just your your circumstances. And even if it's not just climbing, but to sort of, we talked about the, earlier about your feeling of having to be the legacy climber, but you do have a feeling and you have been taught to sort of live a life beyond, like I said, your just everyday circumstances.
0: When I think about it, I, I don't really feel like anyone in the in my family is average. And again, this is probably an internal thing, Mm -hmm. but I've always had a mission to never be average, Mm -hmm. um, or to never settle for, for something that I'm not totally happy. in. and my parents recognized that when I was at school. And I think that in combination with the lifestyle that they are very familiar with, um, said, okay, you know, drop, Drop out of school if you don't feel like it was right. Uh, I started shooting photos, actually, because I realized this later. My parents gave me a camera for my graduation gift from high school. And at, I was 17 when I graduated, and so it had only been a year after all of those deaths. And I, I don't think I realized it at the time, but photography was a way to stop things, to capture an image, and... I think at the time, everything was moving so quickly for me. It felt like it was moving, everything was moving so quickly that being able to stop a moment felt like this novelty. And so I just continued shooting photos because I liked it and I was putting stuff on Facebook and people were responding really well to it. And then I kind of offhandedly while I was still at school, applied for a grant, um, a project to go document five years post-Katrina, and that's really where my photo career started, is I won that grant based on a portfolio submission, and I went and documented, and then I applied for a Young Explorers grant through National Geographic, and won that to document post-tsunami in Sumatra, so I was living in Sumatra. And that's really where I got my career started. But I don't think that I'm maybe necessarily a photojournalist. Uh-huh. I think I am a photojournalist in the outdoor. I use the term adventure very loosely. Right. But a adventure, since I, I prefer to tell people's stories that way. So right now, I'm shooting freelance. Um, I was interning at Patagonia last summer in the photo department, which was really awesome. Um, and I have a climbing trip to Ecuador planned for, well, hopefully, um, expeditions are often fall through, but, um, a climbing trip to Ecuador for a volcano to do Mm -hmm. volcanic research with a team. And then next year, um, a group of girls and I won an American Alpine Club grant to go to Baffin Island to do two first ascents, and I'm the photographer on that expedition.
1: Have you uh, have you gotten your jugging kind of wired down a little tighter yet, or?
0: I think I'm gonna. <laughs> I think I'm gonna have to practice a, a few more pitches before we go to Baffin Island. Yeah, it but. might be a good idea. <laughs> I'm just saying. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. <laughs>
1: um, I can't let you go though now that you just brought up Katrina and Sumatra. Oh, okay. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Like, what did you learn down there,
0: uh, uh, or
1: most recently Sumatra, the, right. the tsunami? Let's let's just do that. Okay. Or talk about that for a second. I mean, sure. that sounds incredible.
0: It was. It was I mean, my and,
1: and maybe th- heartbreaking. I don't know what what you found there.
0: Yeah, it was really different. I think doing those two projects, they're so vastly different in the way that people handle death, um, which seemed to be the biggest difference when I was uh, photographing. In Sumatra... Well, because
1: relatively speaking, I mean, the the death toll in Katrina was nothing compared to right. Sumatra. Is that yeah. what you're sort of getting at? Like uh, that was more present or...
0: No. Actually, people with Katrina were really angry. Okay. There was someone to... There was the government to blame in a lot of people's eyes. That I'm not stating that that's my opinion, but um, there... I would say majority of the people I talked to down there were angry mm-hmm. and well, the
1: failure of, of the dykes and, and right. you know, the fact that the city undeniable, all, right. That, that the poor parts of town, you know, were the ones that got wrecked and right. Exactly. Okay.
0: Um, so when I was there, I, I kind of just assumed that when I would go to Sumatra, uh, which was my first trip out of the country, which was pretty wild. Um, I just assumed that Sumatra would be the same. They treat death completely differently. They're, it's 99.9% Muslim in the place that I was. I was in Banda Aceh, the okay. northernmost province, and the province that was hit the hardest. Um, so they said, you know, if Allah... That's, that's what Allah wanted, and so those people were meant to die. Mm-hmm. And they claim that there's no post-traumatic stress in due to that natural disaster anyway right right um, because of their religion sure so it was really vastly different even I mean Katrina once you go outside the city at least when I was there five years post in 2010 the city was still destroyed there was black mold Everywhere it was probably one in four houses being lived in 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 some of the places that I was going to, and in Sumatra, and part of this is because the amount of aid that that came to the rescue, but mm-hmm. um, you could hardly tell that there was a natural disaster in Aceh. The every most everything had been rebuilt, and we had to kind of search out places that were still affected by that or hadn't been torn down. Um so they were they were totally different but um
1: so w- cool projects what, I mean you mentioned religion having something to do with with sort of personal acceptance of it um what else though what other I mean what was the difference what what's going on there in in terms of do you think and maybe just in what you documented you know what why why not why isn't was essentially maybe not quite third world but but probably close they're I mean they turned it around to a certain extent and yet and I know this continues to be a problem I mean things just even now even four more years later are sitting down there waiting to be re- rebuilt in, you know the the wealthiest country in the world like right what what is your perspective on it? I mean did you walk away with with a deeper understanding of what what the difference was and you know did it change your attitude and about how you you sort of interact with the world?
0: Yeah, I mean, I've, I've never been a part of a natural disaster, knock on wood, uh, so it's, it's interesting being a part of both of those, I feel so much a part of both of those disasters, but uh, not having been in them, nor having lost anyone in them, um, it's sort of this removed perspective. Right. And uh, I came away from Sumatra with actually kind of a tainted view of aid work, and I mean, it's so well intentioned, but a lot. I saw a lot of things there that were so poorly executed that it was hard to not feel a little bit jaded. Mm-hmm. seeing it? Yeah the the religion. It's interesting because I was studying social work in school, and so and um, that was really interesting to me. And before the tsunami Sumatra, well Aceh was actually immersed in a really brutal civil conflict for 30 years and the country was virtually closed Mm -hmm. to tourists because it was just so dangerous and war torn and so uh, when the tsunami happened it was it created a peace treaty both parties said we've lost so many people we need to come to an agreement for this and a lot of it was over natural resources and um, religion and so I think that's a massive difference too, is there is this, there is this, um, everyone had lost so much and not saying that people in Katrina hadn't lost so much, but they had this whole other added war part of it that I think coming together, they, they all helped each other Um, and they rebuilt much better in my opinion than, than we have in new Orleans Mm -hmm. still. But the religion was the biggest difference. the The letting go of, of death and in in Sumatra, they were pretty public about it. They had like photos of um, bodies in museums and right. hanging up in memorials, and that were very gruesome.
1: You know, any any sort of basic grief counselor says acceptance is you know in there right. and. You know, perhaps, and this is like a far afield of our original conversation, but <laughs> it's, it's away from the rest of us. I mean, New Orleans is this one city in our country versus like having a whole coast wiped out right. or whatnot. And, yes. and, and, you know, we wanted it to be taken care of and mm-hmm. and forget about it for the moment you yeah. know, or certain, to a certain extent.
0: Yeah. And there's actually, I'm missing the words right now, um, but when you are so overwhelmed when a natural disaster or some large catastrophe happens um and you're being f- fed so much negativity on the news and on the radio and people are talking about it your brain has to kind of shut that out sure and so i i think that that probably could have happened to us with katrina that, sure. that we just were so overwhelmed with that that mm-hmm. got pushed
1: yeah, and, and and to a certain extent, I've I've thinking about it. I just, I mean, I just assume, you know, they're 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 they rebuilt this like the the floods in Boulder last year, you know. Yeah, like, right. I, I mean, I'm not taking care of it, but I assume someone is, and right. somebody is, right. actually. You know, <laughs> Big Thompson's open and things like that. So yeah. you know, but that obviously has broken down down there to an extent that maybe a lot of us uh, out here and in, in, in wherever we are don't really realize that that. They've bro- it's broken. I mean, even compared to Sandy up in New York. Right. You know, I yeah. think all these comparisons are now being made and, and people are kind of wondering, well, well, what, what broke down, down in, in those parts. But if someone like you, isn't down there telling us about it, I mean, I don't seek it out on the news or whatever. Right. So. And
0: that's, that's why we did the project in Sumatra sure. uh, was because there was no, I couldn't find and my expedition partner, Chris Michael couldn't find any photographs of, the rebuilding process. So it was this massive media gap because how a place rebuilds is in my opinion, equally as important as the sure. disaster itself. Right.
1: Can we find any of this anywhere?
0: Yeah. Can we see this stuff. Sure. If you visit com, okay, cool. That's all right. <laughs> shameless plug you can, plug for you can <laughs>
1: spray down your plug i'm gonna i'll link it on the website and everything okay, else great. so
0: cool um, because i mean i'm
1: curious now myself so
0: yeah and and i should that
1: was uh becca scanner.com we sorry. don't do the w's anymore
0: oh okay right Just, okay sorry <laughs> i missed that memo um <laughs> <laughs> well
1: because it's too hard to say
0: right okay sorry you're right three w's we know they right okay Acceptance. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, well, to clarify the Sumatra project for that grant, myself and my expedition partner teamed up with James Balog, actually the, the guy that runs the Extreme Ice Survey, mm-hmm. and was right. photographing receding glaciers. Uh, when s- the Sumatran tsunami happened, he went over to Banda Aceh and took these photos of these crazy architectural artifacts um that had been washed into places or buildings that were still standing amongst all this rubble and really powerful photos and so we went over there to repeat these photos so it was like one big scavenger hunt to show this is a i guess you can't even really say before, but this is a, immediately after, and this is, I think we were there seven years post okay. tsunami. So, right, comparison. so this is the same
1: spot. Yes. This is what it looks like now. Yes. Right. Okay. That's that's real. Yeah. I love those things. Actually. Yeah. That's really well, cool. Great.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, There's I'll plenty check of them.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, how are you feeling now? I mean, we, we just went through this. Uh, you just bared your soul, and I very much appreciate it. And I, I say that not as a cliche, but. You seem, you know, your presentation implies and the fact that you're willing to talk about this implies that you have gotten to sort of a, a better place in terms of your feelings about climbing, your feelings about your uncle's death, the way your family's interacting. Um, yeah. I mean, where, where are you now? I mean, do, do, you, do you have your struggles still with it or, or are you feeling better about it?
0: Uh, yeah, I think I definitely still have my struggles with it and putting together that presentation um, I I think I cried multiple times putting it together. Um, but I mostly just I think that
1: you made some of us cry too.
0: I'm so sorry. Is that all the mean things I said to you guys during my presentation?
1: No, no, I'm, I'm, you know, but you yeah. saw them. You saw the tears. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, And um, that was the. It wasn't my intention no. to to make people sad. I'm just trying to tell my story in a, in a way that it might. I think growing up as a, maybe not necessarily a child of the industry, but grouping myself into this larger child or family member of these great shadows, I, I think it's probably applicable to people in different situations. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're, you talked to Angie about that. Sure. It's, um, so I think if sharing that story helps people, then, then that's great. So I'm doing well. I I miss my uncle a lot, mm-hmm. but it's nice to be with my family this week. So,
1: all right. Well, it's been great to meet you and hang out with you the last few days, and I really appreciate you sitting down in the, uh, the mobile studio. And uh, I think people are really going to appreciate that you shared all this with them.
0: Well, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for posing in front of my camera. Oh yeah. Great. We've got some portraits coming out. <laughs> yeah. So.
1: All
2: right. Thanks a lot. Thanks. you. All right, thanks for listening, everybody, and I want to thank Becca Skinner again for coming on and being so open, so well-spoken about uh, what she went through and what her family went through, and the irony of the fact that I was again asking her to sort of relive it was not lost on me, and I appreciate that she put up with that and was willing to come in. So if you guys uh, dig the Enorma cast, remember there are plenty of ways to help out. I did beg for donations last time and got quite a few, so I want to thank everybody who clicked in and kicked down. There's a donate button on the website, anormacast.com, but there's also a help out tab. have got a bunch of other things you can do to help the podcast. Just do a little work on the Internet for me, spreading the word, hijacking the iTunes algorithm somehow. Go over to anormacast.com and check it out. And as the darkness descends upon us, each day getting shorter, shorter do not go gently into that good night but fight fight against the dying of the light and also don't forget to check your knot Come far, pilgrim. Feels like far. Were it worth the trouble? Ah,
0: huh. What trouble?